Welcome to Mortals, a podcast where we explore how humans have dealt with death throughout history. From embalming and epitaphs to mourning and morgues, we are taking a look at rites, rituals, and practices from around the world. Mortals podcast is for the morbidly curious or the curiously morbid. This week, we are talking about the life and death of Alexander the Great. Please be advised that this episode involves discussion and or mention of alcoholism, sexual violence, sex with minors by adults, violent colonialism, and ethnocentrism. Now let's get on to the show. So two things right off the top for everybody listening at home. You may have noticed from your introduction that we are short one of our co-hosts today. Christia is away on a well-deserved vacation, of course. She will, however, be back for part two of this particular episode, which is the other thing to address is that this is going to be the first two-part episode that we have done deliberately one after the other on Mortals. Uh, simply because with Alexander the Great, if you're familiar with him at all, there, there's a lot to go through. And unfortunately, if we include talking about the Lost Tomb and everything that follows his death, it will not fit into a edible portion size. Like, you, you would not be able to eat it all in one serving. So, with that said, Janine, do you know much about Alexander the Great? I know nothing. Well, <laughs> not nothing. I know the name. I know he has to do with... Greece slash Macedonia, uh, all that stuff. I know he lived a long, long, long time ago in the BC dates. That's what I know. Fair enough. And I think I think most people it's comparable because Alexander the Great, I think, is a name we hear bandied about. So Alexander the Great is one of the most successful colonizers in history. He single-handedly did more expansion than any other human being in history. And when he died, he was semi-deified throughout his empire. He had taken on the mantle of being the son of Amon Zeus, which is kind of an amalgamation of a very small and specific Egyptian god with the Hellenistic Zeus. He very much had an enormous power of worship and he had accomplished so much that the space that he occupied in the new Hellenistic world was one step down from a literal god. In the aftermath of his death, his body was moved several times secretly and during massive times of war and upset and conquest by other groups of people much later on. So we actually don't know where Alexander the Great's corpse is. Archaeologists have been hunting for it for millennia. Also, Alexander the Great probably personally contributed to tens of thousands of deaths in the 10 years that he was on campaign. So he himself has generated a lot of death. He also orchestrated one of the largest like funerary monuments and proceedings ever in history for Hephaestion, which we'll get to closer to the end here. So he's very much tied in with death, but the thing that we'll be looking at Primarily in part two is the fallout and the lost tomb, where people think it went, the modern attempts to find it, why we're still looking for it, and all that fun stuff. So that's why we're looking at Alexander the Great. He's also a very complicated figure in a lot of ways that we'll get into, with of course the caveat that my research is nowhere near the lifetimes of research that have gone into Alexander the Great, so there I'm liable to make some mistakes specifically regarding names, dates, names of places. Also, I can't hold on to ancient military history. I don't know the difference between a cavalry and an infantry, and I know that was important to Alexander's style of fighting. So we're going to skim largely over a lot of the very important battles that made up his military career except for where is absolutely necessary to discuss the outcomes or parts of those battles as required to understand the aftermath of Alexander's life. So like you said, he is from the before times, literally the before Christ times, before common era. So the years when they are referred to will be going backwards, counting down to zero, obviously. But before we can talk about Alexander, we do have to talk a little bit about the world that he came into, as well as his parents, Philip II of Macedon and Olympias, who is from Empiris. 
At the time that Philip II comes into power in Macedon, it's shortly after the golden age of Greek philosophy and Greek thought. Macedonia is not actually a city-state, it's a kingdom just off the side of what we would consider Greece is. So they were definitely part of the Hellenistic world, but they weren't necessarily Greeks. And a lot of sources will either make sure to divide them, be like the Greeks and the Macedonians, or they'll lump them all together. So at the time, Macedonia wouldn't have made really a mark in any history books if it wasn't for Philip and Alexander in particular. There's a quote from uh, Peter Green's biography regarding the attitude towards Macedonia. I'm going to read it for you now. The attitude of city-state Greeks to this sub-Homeric enclave was one of genial and sophisticated contempt. They regarded Macedonians in general as semi-savages, uncouth of speech and dialect, negligible as fighters, and habitual oath-breakers who dressed in bear pelts and were much given to deep and swinish potations, tempered with regular bouts of assassination and incest. Just your good old-fashioned regular bouts of assassination. Nothing special. <laughs> right? It paints a pretty, like, detailed word picture of how Macedonia was perceived. And it was a kingdom that was very much plagued with having a weak peasant army that was riddled with coups and internal violence because it was actually split into two groups. There was Upper Macedonia and Lower Macedonia who were distinct from each other ethnically, religiously, linguistically. And Philip II actually comes from a house of Lower Macedonia that draws its genealogy all the way down from Heracles, who was one of the famous heroes of the time. All the kings leading up to Philip and including Philip were increasingly better at manipulation of the other city-states. Amyntas, who is Philip's father, made an attempt to control Athens and Sparta and play them off of each other because Macedonia had something that the other city-states didn't, and that was good fir. F-I-R, like the tree, uh, that okay. was n necessary for building warships and other important means of military infrastructure. And I definitely thought you meant fur as in animal fur because... <laughs> My brain is filled with Canadian history that is built upon Canada. It's built upon the fur trade and the Hudson's Bay Company, so. Absolutely. And I mean, if Canada had more fur trees, then we could say it was built off of fur and fur because it was very much built off of the fur off of animals' backs and also the trees off the land. <laughs> this was kind of Macedonia's main means of control is that it had a monopoly on good shipbuilding wood. Most of this empire in the area that we're going to be talking about is a lot of the Mediterranean, as we know it, as well as parts of the Middle East, particularly Afghanistan, Iran, uh, Tajikistan, and then into like Western India, into Jordan and Egypt. I may be confusing this, but I feel like that area was not, wasn't it all referred to as Persia at that time? You are correct. Okay. So at the time that we're talking about in the 350s, uh, going forward into like the three. 30s, 320s, the Persian Empire is the largest known empire to the Hellenistic peoples. So a lot of that area is controlled by Persia, and that's a huge part of Alexander's military career, and actually is at the very tail end of Philip's. So when Philip comes into power, essentially he's left as regent while his father goes off to do something, the conflict breaks out, and the king is killed. Philip, acting as regent, is immediately made king, but he has two legitimate brothers and three illegitimate brothers who are all older than he's the youngest of six known brothers. And there are immediately five usurpers standing at the gate waiting to take the throne because there's no, there's like no set rules about who then takes the place of the king. That's why there's so many coups and usurpers and people just duking it out. The only rules seem to be that women couldn't rule. <laughs> So, I mean, of course women couldn't rule. How can women rule a kingdom? Greek chauvinism, right? Specifically ancient Greece. Greeks, please don't come for me. We are talking about 2,300 years ago. So there's also a quote in here about Amentus, who is Philip's father, that I wanted to give you just to give you kind of a taste of the difference that we're about to see in the very first years of Philip's career. This is from Peter Green's biography. 
Amentus, everyone agreed, was a joke like most of his predecessors. Trimmers, traitors, drunks, murderers, vacillating money grabbers, cowardly and inefficient despots. The Argia dynasty, which is a lower Macedonian lineage said to be descended from Heracles, had not won respect from Greek public opinion, and Amentus in this respect did little to improve matters. So he's not looked on very well by the rest of Greece and the Hellenistic world. When Philip takes over as king, he, one, within a matter of weeks, does away with all five of his brothers, just like has them assassinated or absolutely put in their place so they cannot touch him, as well as very quickly has basically anyone else who can contend for the throne put down and immediately begins to turn the peasant army of Macedonia into almost Spartan-like professional soldiers. He's just uh, getting shit done. He gets shit done. And Philip II of Macedon is actually an extremely fascinating figure who deserves a lot of time on his own, but that's... His tomb isn't lost. We kind of know where he is, I think. So within four years of taking the crown, Philip II becomes one of the most powerful kings in the entire Hellenistic world, including Sparta, Thebes, Athens, Illyria all these other city-states and small kingdoms. He had no less than five wives. Uh, I've seen claims of up to seven or eight wives, uh, as well as countless women paramour and young men, because sexuality and sexual behavior in Greece cannot be compared nicely to our modern standards. So how much grooming there was is hard to say. But it was it was uncommon for men to be sleeping with each other without a age gap of at least 10 years. Married women, of course, conjugal fidelity was extremely important to try and avoid like a cuckoo situation where somebody's come in and uh, impregnated the queen or at least the king's wife and he's like, aha, an heir. And then later it comes up, it's like, aha, not my heir. So that's the reason for that double standard. It was never about love and especially for Macedonians, it was about like tribal kinship. It was about binding groups together. It was very economic. Um, Alexander does actually have one older brother from, I believe, Philip's first or second wife. Um, however, as far as history tells, he had a cognitive disability that kind of put him out of the run as preferred successor. Okay. And his name was Aridius, if I remember correctly. Uh, he kind of pops up here and there when there's like big purges of royal houses and they're like, Aridius is fine. You can leave him. He's not a threat. Don't worry. He's good. <laughs> he's, he's good. <laughs> so, <laughs> at the very least, Alexander did not kill his brother Aridius. That does not mean he doesn't kill other brothers. So Philip marries Olympias, who I believe is his third wife. Um, some records say she's earlier. Some say she's later. It's hard to keep track of how many wives Philip has. But they keep having girls and or dying in childbirth because they're so young. Olympias is only 17 when she marries Philip. He's, I think in his mid to late, I think he's... 26 or 27. So a fair age gap. That was not um, as much as I was expecting, though. All things considered, not super bad. And Olympias herself is a very interesting and conniving sort of figure. She gets painted really badly in historical records. But she was also seen as being very headstrong and sullen and jealous with, like, a bloody temper and ridiculous political ambitions. She was like, I am going to raise a king and he is going to be the king of kings. She was also a super devout follower of the cult of Dionysus and kept extremely large tame snakes everywhere, including in her bed. That's incredible. I'm thinking, <laughs> so this, we're talking about Alexander's mother, uh, Olymp mm -hmm. Olympias? Olymp mm -hmm. Is that her name? Did I pronounce that right? Yeah, that's the name that she takes. It's not the name that she originally had, which was Myrtale, M-Y-R-T-A-L-E. And she was the older sister of the king of Epirus, whose name was also Alexander. Okay. Um, I'm just I'm just wondering. So you mentioned that she says, I'm going to raise a king. Mm -hmm. I wonder how much of that is historical bias after the fact. Is that attributed to her? How is that phrase attributed to her? Is it something that all these, the the, the legacy of Alexander has put upon her and you, you know, you get what I'm trying to say. Yeah. 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 So the, the thing with Olympias is that as far as any records show, including Alexander's own journals, um, the records kept by Plutarch, who I believe was the official court historian for most of Alexander's life, Callisthenes, 
who was Aristotle's nephew and was the official biographer on Alexander's campaign. Olympias very much had her sights set on the throne for Alexander. From the time that he was born, she very much put it in his head that this was his, like, divine birthright. And it's, it's a hugely formative part of who Alexander is growing up. He also very much fashions himself after Achilles from the Iliad. So Alexander was born in 356. There's lots of later added omens and flavor around his birth that was added by propagandists and historical interpretations with agendas in mind. Is there something about a rope? Is this totally... For some Uh, reason that just popped into my head. There was something about a rope. There might be. Um, There's a myth that, that Philip caught Olympias with a snake in her bed doing the do um, and assumed that it was uh, an avatar of Zeus for some reason, which I think adds later to the self-deification that Alexander goes through. There's myths that when Alexander was born, it was in like a trio of three good things. He had a male heir. He had just, his generals had won a decisive battle and his horses had won at the Olympics on the same day. He was having a great day, Philip II. He was like, hell yeah, things are going my way, but Good things coming in three is a bad sign. So he goes to an oracle who tells him that... Basically, she tells him that things will probably be fine, but a temple of Artemis burns down in Ephesus, which is like a nearby town. And that temple did actually burn down in and about that time. Whether the visit to the oracle actually happened is another another question entirely. Either way, it was a very auspicious birth. A male heir. Hurrah! At last. That didn't die as a very young baby. So we actually don't know a ton about Alexander's very early life. There's lots of mythos around it. But in terms of actual historical record, we don't know a ton. We know that he was obsessed with Achilles. He was like, I am going to be Achilles. I I am Achilles reincarnate. He is the absolute epitome of a hero. And I want to be Achilles. Which, incredible. Alexander the Great, also certified certified horse boy. Horse boy. <laughs> horse boy. Uh, so there's a story that goes when he's about nine or ten, a horse trader from Thessaly comes to show Philip and his companion cavalry, which is a specific thing for, I don't know if it's just Macedonians or other Greek kings, but essentially it's his whole group of right-hand men. So all his his best buds, they treat him as equals. They're also kind of his consultants. They go everywhere with him. Bros to the end, super BFF, companion cavalry. Anyways, so this horse trader brings this beautiful black horse with a white mark on his head, and they're like, ah, oh, this is a beautiful horse. Yeah, we'll buy it. They can't tame it, though. That Nobody can ride it. The trainers and, like tremors and stuff, can't get anywhere near this horse. And Philip's like, well, you know what? Too much of a hassle. Take it back. I don't want it. Uh, and famously, Alexander was like, that's such a shame. Why would you give up such a beautiful horse? So Philip looks at him and is like, well, my can't, my guys can't tame it. Can you, you little upstart? I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But Alexander looks at him and goes, yeah, I can. I'm a horse boy. I'm a horse boy. Uh, essentially, they make a bet that if Alexander can tame this horse, they'll buy it for him. It'll be his horse. Alexander had been watching very closely. The way that kids who are raised among important adults having important discussions are a little more attuned to things around them, Alexander very much was that. And he had noticed that the horse was afraid of its own shadow. So he went over, took the reins, turned the horse towards the sun, so it wasn't facing its own shadow, and then essentially talked it down so it was like, okay, you're cool. Hopped up on the horse's back, they did some gallops, and he was like, hello, this is my best friend, Bucephalus. So named for the ox head branding on his rump. So that's how we get Bucephalus, who Alexander rode until... It was the only horse that Alexander would ride until Bucephalus' death, uh, only a couple years before Alexander's own. Faithful companions. Yeah, Bucephalus lived to be about 30 years old. I don't know what the average lifespan for a horse is, but for a war horse, that's pretty good, it seems. Yeah. There's also an anecdote about Alexander and his teacher Leonidas, who was an old grouchy man with very Spartan-like teachings. Uh, there's a saying that under Leonidas, breakfast was a night march and dinner was a light breakfast. 
uh, Alexander learned a lot of his, like, self-discipline and restraint and kind of valuing that almost, like, minimalist uh, sort of life from Leonidas. Uh, Leonidas was famously kind of stingy as well with incense burning when they did sacrifices every day. He once chided Alexander for using too much incense and told him, when you've conquered the spice-bearing regions, you can throw away all the incense you like. Until then, don't waste it. Famously, after Alexander had taken control of Gaza, which was the entry point for all of the spices and stuff coming out of the Middle East, he sent Leonidas 18 tons of frankincense and myrrh and was like, now stop being so fucking stingy with the gods. <laughs> That's incredible. This was a solid 15 years after Leonidas had made that errant comment. So it goes to show that Alexander takes things very personally and holds on to them. And is like, only just desserts will do for okay, this. Okay, old man, here's your incense. Here's your incense, stop being so fucking stingy, and maybe you would have conquered Gaza. Because it was customary for kings away on conquest to like send back gifts from their conquests, and usually he sent one to like his mother, and you know, some of the, his other generals. This was the only gift he ever sent to Leonidas. Incredible. Was 18 solid tons. And he just dumped it all on the man's front lawn. So Philip acquired Aristotle, the Aristotle, as a tutor for Alexander and his companions, which included Hephaestion, Perdiccas, and Ptolemy I. By essentially agreeing to retake Aristotle's hometown and return from exile everybody who had been exiled, and Aristotle was like, well, fuck, can't turn that up. <laughs> you make an offer, I cannot refuse. Yeah. Uh, and this was right after Plato had chosen his own nephew to head up the academy instead of Aristotle. So Aristotle was in a bit of a bit of straits. So essentially, Philip sent away Alexander and and the boys to kind of a small area out in the mountains to be taught by Aristotle for three years is how long it lasted. The exact nature of what Aristotle taught them is not known. He was kind of a general tutor. He taught them all sorts of stuff, reading and writing and math and philosophy, of course. Uh, when he's 16, Philip calls him back to act as regent. While Philip is away on a campaign of his own, he makes Alexander regent. Almost the split second Philip leaves, there's an uprising in an area that's controlled by Macedonia. And Alexander's like, hell yeah, boys! Time to shine. Rides out there, quashes the rebellion, takes over a military base, and sets up Alexandropolis, the first of over 30 towns he would attempt to establish in his own name. Oh my god. Just name everything after yourself. Fucking everything. There's one town that's also named, like, Alexandros Bucephalus that's named after him and his horse. Oh my god, that's incredible. In memoriam, because it's right after Bucephalus dies. It's incredible. Most of these towns do not remain. There's a couple. So there was also this feature of the education and kind of the thought around peoples that was present with Aristotle, but also largely the Hellenistic world. And that was that anyone who was non-Greek was a barbarian, was naturally given to slavery and subjugation. Aristotle was very much also of this camp, which is why a lot of times when the Macedonians and Greeks took areas um, of Persia, of neighboring kingdoms, they would kill all of the men of fighting age, and then they would put the children and women into slavery. They would sell them off. Wow. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've dabbled in any kind of classical history and that kind of stuff, but it's amazing how little people's mindsets have changed. Yeah. So that's an important part of Alexander's history is that this idea that anybody who's hedonistic or non-Greek in any way is inherently lesser. Because often Alexander gets lauded for his multiculturalism later in life, but there's more pragmatic reasons for that than him being super woke for, you know, the three the 340s uh, BC. <laughs> So Alexander takes this military base, sets up a military colony, names it after himself. He's 16. And Philip is like, should I be concerned that the first thing he did was swoop in and set up his own colony? That's kind of stepping on my toes. Because at this point, Philip was still in the prime of his life. He was just away. He was like, I just need someone to look after shit. And I've been training you to do this your whole life. 
Perhaps um, training a little too well. Perhaps. And part of this is attributed to Olympias's influence. Alexander notably idolized his mother. Loved him. Total mama's boy. Which I think for some people is a little discordant to be like, he's a horse boy, he's a mama's boy. You know, he slept with the Iliad underneath his pillow his whole life. And also he murders tens of thousands of people and goes on the biggest conquest any single man ever has. All these things exist in one person. Yeah, yeah, many a things do. So eventually, this is where we start to get into the battle of things. By 18, Alexander's a full-blown cavalry general, which I guess is a pretty high rank. Again, I don't know anything about Greek militaries. There's a super decisive battle that happens, uh, Chironia, which happens after essentially Sparta and Athens are like, we gotta get rid of this guy. He's too powerful. He's a problem. He's a Macedonian. Get this motherfucker out of here. And Philip and Alexander win, essentially taking control of all of Greece with one battle, which was an, imp an important kind of military goal for Philip that Alexander inherited was to unite all of Greece as one Hellenistic force and then to go after the Persian Empire for slights done to them about 200 years prior uh, when Xerxes had come over and burned down a bunch of their very important temples. Could you imagine if we just decided because of a slight from 200 years ago that we were going to go and conquer another country? Yeah, and not just like a country, like a whole, like the biggest known empire. <laughs> it's like that Artaxerxes okay. guy, he's fucking going down. He burnt down Artemis' temple th three or four generations back. How much hubris do you have to do something like that? It's... A lot. Again, he believe like, Philip's line claims to be descended from Heracles, and actually, on Olympias' side, they claim ancestry from Achilles. So, there's a lot of this that goes into Alexander as a person as well, this claim to god's blood and, like, hero blood. So, after all of this, essentially, Philip is like, cool, I got a plan for all y'all. He calls a council at Corinth and proposes a plan to unite all of the Hellenistic city-states into the Hellenistic League, or the Corinthian League, as it's also called, that would support each other, you know, militarily and that sort of thing, and that the Hellenistic League, which did not include Macedonia, would make an alliance with Macedonia and let Philip and all of his heirs serve as hegemon or leader for all of the decisions. So basically, the Hellenistic League would be in the position where they have to help Macedonia but Macedonia is under no obligations to help them and also controls the whole thing. Just another piece of evidence that the Greek <laughs> and Hellenistic world has influenced us and the entire of the West. Uh, hegemon. Hegemony. I assume yeah. hegemon is a title, but we've taken yeah. it and extrapolated it as a word that means having complete domination. <laughs> yeah, it's. I imagine that that's probably where hegemon derives from. And, like, the Macedonian idea of a ruler was a lot more authoritarian than the other Greek city-states. It's part of why they were viewed as despots and that sort of thing, is that aside from, like, a couple of things that were pseudo-democratic, the king of Macedonia had total control of the country. Important as well to note is that Philip and Alexander both are not... They don't have good heads for economy. The way that Green describes it is that they both have a pirate's mentality towards economy, which is a very, like, take it and spend it, that treasury is the same as treasure sort of thing. So setting up, like, stable economies of cash flow was not something that they were good at or terribly concerned with. So all of Amintas's work to be like, hey, we got this monopoly on a good financial resource. This means we have financial needs. Fucking chuck that out. We're just taking shit now. Yeah. And when what, that runs out, we'll take somebody else's shit. What need do you have for accounting when you can just conquer more and claim more wealth? Right? Uh, it was a huge problem, though, because all of these professional soldiers always ended up being in arrears for getting paid on all these campaigns and stuff. But you had to finish a campaign to take the treasury, aka the treasure, to pay that back. So Philip's Macedonia was not doing great in terms of economy. 
But with the Hellenistic League making alliance with Macedonia, and they didn't really have a choice because he had demonstrated that he had the military might to take control by force. So they're like, well, it's either this or get raised to the ground. And uh, plenty of us are already dead, so let's not do that. So basically the Hellenistic League is formed. The idea is that they meet every six months in Corinth to discuss things and to, you know, make any extra alliances and stuff. I don't know what uh, what a proto-UN does necessarily other than show up and be like, Hey, Philip, you're still in charge of everything? Great! Uh, notably, Sparta refuses to join. Sparta has a total holdout, and as we know, Sparta is kind of like the military, the toughest kind of city-state in the Hellenistic world. And Philip is like, you know what? I'll leave them be. It's not worth my time to go after one city-state. Because mm-hmm. I control everything else already. So they get all this set up. And at about this time, Philip marries a full-blooded Macedonian woman named Cleopatra. Importantly, all of his previous marriages had been about tying the Macedonians closer to other groups. It was all about the economy. So the fact that he suddenly married a full-blooded Macedonian woman as his seventh, I think seventh wife, was a big deal. Because he also followed that up with suddenly claiming that Alexander was a bastard and Olympias was an adulteress and he was no longer a suitable heir. He's threatened. So threatened. And it, this is something that baffles historians. Because at this point, Philip is preparing for the biggest and probably longest campaign of his life, which is against Persia. As a king of a very tumultuous area, he really needs to make sure that his home front is secure, that he has an heir waiting. No one at this point has opposed Alexander as the heir apparent. They're like, yeah, he's good at it. He's ob- like, you put him in control while you're away with Antipater, who is part of Philip's old guard. He's essentially serves as like an advisor for Alexander as regent. He's not a bad guy. We can trust Antipater. But essentially, Alexander has accomplished a great deal. And for Macedonians, accomplishes and successes were themselves valuable. It wasn't about what you took or what you inherited. It's what you yourself did. So Alexander had once commented, actually, that the way that things were going, Philip was not going to leave any success or glory anywhere in the world for him to take for his own. But at this point, he's poised to go after the empire, or he's just about to marry this new girl, specifically to try and get a new male heir, and throws off Olympias, who is pissed Um, and Alexander, who's like, what do I do now? This is the only thing I've ever been raised to be. What are you talking about? Um, and things break pretty bad. So at the wedding night dinner for Philip and Cleopatra, Alexander comes in, sits down across from his father and goes, when my mother remarries, I'll invite you to her wedding. This doesn't go down great. A great amount of wine is consumed because this is Ancient Greece and everybody's absolutely sloshed most evenings. Libations. Libations! But essentially, things get a little crazy. Attalus, who is also a very high-ranking general under Philip, stands up to give a toast that they should pray the gods will bless Alexander and Cleopatra with a legitimate male heir. Alexander loses his shit and throws his goblet of wine at Attalus, who then throws it back yelling at him, are you calling me a bastard? Shit kind of breaks out. The two get held apart, but Philip gets up drunk as a skunk, calling for a sword to kill his son, to kill Alexander. And he does actually attempt to, he finally gets his hand on a sword, tries to go after Alexander, trips over a stool and hits the deck. And what has got to be one of the sickest burns laid out in the last several thousand years, Alexander looks around at all of the men gathered. This gentleman is the man who's been preparing to cross from Europe to Asia, and he can't even make it from one couch to the next. Sick burn. Sick burn! Take that, Dad! Um, <laughs> That's what you get for disowning me. And he essentially storms out because he's just seen his father, who is, like, one of the most powerful kings in all of the Hellenistic area, try and kill him. So he gets up, and they fucking flee. They go into exile for, I think, about two years. Alexander goes to chill with his friend who is the king of Illyria next door, and Olympias goes back to Epirus with uh, her brother. Philip, he has a child with Cleopatra who is a girl, and he's like, fuck! <laughs> <laughs> Shit! It's <laughs> not what I wanted! And he essentially has no choice but to try and get Alexander to come back as heir, 
just in case. He sends, like, a mutual friend of his and Alexander's to go get Alexander, who comes back. There's spoken distrust, and he's like, no, 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 you're the heir now. You're in control. It's fine. Notably, Philip does not give him back any real princely responsibilities and also goes out of his way to make sure Olympias stays away. That doesn't work for long because Alexander of Epirus, so this is the brother-in-law of Philip, not the son. This gets very confusing. Ancient Greeks had a very short list of names and a lot of children, apparently. Alexander of Epirus is like, hey, actually, fuck you. I'm going to start a fight. Philip is like, hold your horses. At this point, he does not have the resources to have a major conflict or even a minor conflict. He is well in arrears to his soldiers. He's still gearing up for the biggest campaign ever of his life. And he's like, how about this? I'll marry you my daughter, Cleopatra, because he also has a daughter named Cleopatra. Okay. So. (laughs) Alexander, Cleopatra, Philip. Yeah. So we're just, we're just going to continue to clarify as we talk about it. But he's like, I'll marry you my daughter. So essentially this is the king of Epirus's niece by blood. And he's like, yeah, sure. You know what? That's fine. That's fine. Let's do that. So this brings the whole messy family back together. Olympias, Alexander, Philip, preparing for uh, Cleopatra, the daughter's wedding to her uncle, Alexander, the king of Epirus. At this wedding, this is days before he's supposed to go on his Persian campaign. The first day of wedding preparations, Cleopatra, the wife, gives birth to a male baby. The second day of the wedding preparations, when... Philip comes out to do, like, the royal procession sort of thing. He's flanked by both Alexanders, his son and his brother-in-law. He's wearing all white, and he's elected not to have his companion cavalry slash bodyguards with him at the moment, because he's like, I should show that I trust the people of Greece. It was the wrong choice! (laughs) I wonder how this is gonna go. A young man who is also part of the bodyguard, so the very, very close retinue, rushes up the stage stabs Philip with a Celtic sword, killing him instantly. Drops the sword and books it the fuck out of there. There's like a moment of stunned silence where everybody's like, did that kid just kill the king? Oh, yes, he did. Yep. Before a bunch of them took off after him, including several members of Alexander's own companion cavalry. And I'll get into who the actual assassin is in a second here. Antipater, who was the general on the spot ratifies Alexander as the new king because he's like, we cannot have this go bad super fast. And also in the meantime, Persia's emperor uh, Artaxerxes was killed by his grand brazier, who is his like close bodyguard and replaced with a puppet named Artaxes. So that's going on in the background. Persia's changed hands due to also an assassination by a close member of the guard. The young nobleman who chased down the assassin The kid trips over a root, hits the deck, and is run through with spears and killed on the spot. As to why exactly he killed the king, there's some speculation. This is where some of the kind of blood on Olympia's hands gets painted. So the young man was named Pausanias, one of Philip's young lovers. So the young man's name is Pausanias. And this is where it gets extra confusing and was really hard to understand while I was reading about it. Essentially what had happened is that Philip had thrown over Pausanias for a younger man, also named Pausanias, who was a friend of Attalus. Assassin Pausanias, who had just been thrown over, kind of makes a scene about it, and Attalus is like, nah, you don't fucking do that. And so he contrives a plot in which he invites Pausanias over for dinner. Assassin Pausanias, not his friend Pausanias. Uh, They they get him blackout drunk, and then him and the other guests take turns raping him and beating him. And after Pausanias recovers from this, like, horrible attack, he goes to Philip and is like, Hey, Atlas and his buddies did this thing to me. You need to do something about it. And Philip is kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll deal with it. Problem. Atlas is a very high-ranking general with a lot kind of on the line with the Persian Empire. He's one of the main scouts. He's... A very important person to have around. So Philip just dawdles and dawdles and dawdles and dawdles and dawdles and dawdles and doesn't do fucking anything about it. Mm-hmm. And so the theory goes that this was either a killing of passion just by Pausanias going, hey, super fucked up thing happened. You didn't do shit. Which, honestly, 
kind of his right. The only reason he didn't kill Atlas himself is because Atlas was out of the country on a scouting mission ahead for the Persian conquest. <laughs> the other theories claim that either Alexander or Olympias herself may have used it as a way to provoke Pisanias into doing the killing while promising to provide him with like getaway horses and stuff. So, and most of that blame falls on Olympias. They're like, she's a conniver, she's super jealous. Her thing was she was super jealous when anybody threatened her position as the mother of the heir. Hmm. So other wives that bore other children of Philip, she was like, yeah, that's cool. We're buds. We're like, I like her a lot better than I like him. So long as they didn't produce heirs. If they produced girls, that's fine. She was like, ah, that's fine. My kid's still top. So quite a type. But basically, Alexander's like, great, got what I wanted. We're going to lock this shit down. <laughs> There's a bunch of revolts that happen. He runs all over the place, fucking putting these things down. Thebes acts up, and he ends up actually burning the city of Thebes to the ground. They, like, loot and pilfer. They kill all of the men of fighting age, and they enslave all the women and children and destroy the entire city. Which, essentially, Athens had also tried to rise up, and they sued for peace, which Alexander granted. And so with that, he now had control of all of Macedonia and the Hellenistic League. And he was like, great, on to Persia. So he basically just took over Philip's campaign to take over the Persian Empire. He gets cracking. Famously, Alexander never loses any fight. Even when he's fighting armies that are ten times like the size of his, his soldiers are so disciplined and trained, they're second only to Spartans. At this point, here's where there's a bunch of battles and skirmishes that happen. He goes around liberating Greek city-states that have been under Persian rule for a while. Uh, and being like, haha, I freed you. Now you answer to me. And a lot of these city-states were like, we were actually fine. We are doing okay. Like, wh what are you doing, we were, buddy? We were good. The Persians actually pay their armies on time. And generally kind of let us be. Like, yeah, we pay taxes, but that's fine. And essentially, Alexander was like... You're free of that. You still pay taxes. They just go to me now. Change of ownership. Change of ownership. And by this point as well, the puppet emperor of Persia, who had replaced Artaxerxes, was also assassinated by his grand vizier, grand vizier, head of his bodyguard. He got, he got sniped from behind, essentially. And the person who took his place is a guy named Darius III. Darius III, not a puppet. And if there is... Anyone who is like an anime rival to Alexander the Great, it's Darius III. So Alexander advances past the point where it's captured Greek cities and into Persia proper. So into what is now, you know, the Middle East. There's a couple of battles where Darius is not present. And then he finally starts showing up because he's like, okay, this Alexander motherfucker is clearly a bigger problem than I originally intended. So he shows up. And unlike Alexander, who leads one of the large flanks of his army, Alexander or, uh, Darius III is, like, in the very center with, like, concentric rings of stronger and stronger people to protect him. The first battle where they're both present, Darius up and flees when things start turning against him, abandoning his mother, wife, and children back at their base camp. Oh, as so well as his whole army. So he's afraid. He, yeah, he absolutely bails the military effort collapses because they're like, did our, did he just, Where did, did he, he just run? Did our king just book it the fuck out of here? <laughs> what? <laughs> and things fall apart and Alexander fucking slaughters a fuck ton of them. Um, he goes back and he does capture the mother, the wife, and the children. He doesn't do them any harm though. When his soldiers are like, what do we fucking do with these ladies? He's like, treat them like the royalty they are because they're my royalty now. I bested Darius in combat, so he's admitted I'm the true king, sort of thing. So you can kind of see Alexander's ego mm -hmm. at this point really in play. Darius sends him a treaty that's like, hey, I will give you all the land you just took, 10,000 silver talents, and please give me back my all the women in my family. And Alexander writes back to him and famously addresses it to Darius from King Alexander. And it's like, you don't get to decide who divvies up land anymore because you fucking ran. I was gonna say, like, he says, I will let you have the land you just took. He already took it. He already took it. He's he not giving it, it back. Have you heard about this man? He's like, 
He's a like a ruthless megalomaniac. <laughs> he's just he's just chopping and swinging. But he also had this streak of again very anime like where he's like, ah, oh, I've bested you in combat, but you did such a good job fighting me that I have a lot of respect for you and we're bros now. Darius does not get this honor because he flees like an absolute coward and also a smart person who wants to live. There's another battle where Darius shows up and he's like, I'm gonna do it this time. I'm gonna do it this time. He lasts like slightly longer, but again, fucking flees. And Alexander's like, bye, bitch. It's my empire now. And like, it gets to a point where Darius is sending him treaties that are like, I will give you like everything on your side of the river. He's basically giving him half of the empire just to stop chasing him. Incredible. <laughs> because Alexander is like, I do not leave usurpers untouched. If there's anybody who can come from my spot, they are dead. So you can see kind of that streak of his father who's like, cool, I've ascended a king, kill all five of my brothers and anyone else who's coming. As well as Olympias's incredible jealousy should anybody jeopardize her or Alexander's position. That very deep, deeply ingrained entitlement, right? It's been said that Alexander never... The reason he went into Persia is because he never had the thought not to. To him, that was his. And so during all of this, Alexander's taken places, he's naming places, he goes to Egypt, and they're like, yeah, fuck the Persians, they disrespected our gods, you can come in here, that's fine. So Egypt is just like, yeah, it's cool, come on in, we've been waiting for you. Do you want tea? Do you want a town? Let's do it. <laughs> so do you he want just like a lighthouse? Yeah, basically, is he just like pops down into Egypt and they're like, cool, whatever you want, man. So he designs the town of Alexandria. While he's there, he actually goes to a very small oasis town called Siwa, just out of like academic interest because they worship a very little known god called Amun. Other Egyptians kind of equate Amun to Ra, so they call him Amun Ra, while the Hellenistic uh, countries and areas attribute him to be more like Zeus. So, and when he goes to see the oracle there, they declare him the son of Amun or Amon Zeus. So this is where he starts to be like, you know what? I am the son of a god. That shit about that Philip said about me not being his son. He's right. My mom fucked a snake that was Zeus, and now I'm here. Talk about enabling. Yeah. A megalomaniac. Uh, yeah, and like over time. Alexander kind of does get into this self-deification thing. It gets worse after he takes Persia, um, which ha starts to have some real kickbacks against him. Hey, editing Mariah here. In the original recording, I misspoke and said that Alexander and the companion cavalry accidentally burnt down the city of Babylon. That is incorrect. They spent five months in the city of Persepolis, which is a city of incredible cultural importance to the Persian Empire and did burn it to the ground, whether it was an accident or not, is up for debate. Either way, it's said that Alexander regretted the incident. It also created a bit of an uphill battle with the Persian people post-taking the throne, the same way that the Egyptians had been upset about the Persians disrespecting their gods. Alexander had now done the same thing. Basically, after that, he's like, all right, back to business. We can't be accidentally burning down towns and starts chasing Darius again. He, unfortunately, does not get a chance because like the two previous great kings, Darius III is assassinated by his grand vizier. Oh, man. Um, and like, Alexander is hot on his trail. Literally, so the grand vizier, a guy named Bessus, stabs Darius III fatally and is like, I'm the great king now, and then fucks off to Central Asia to plan for guerrilla warfare because Alexander is surely coming that far. Um, so Alexander actually finds Darius and he claims, and we don't know how real this claim is, he claims that in his last dying breath, Darius names him the, his official successor. This is unlikely, namely because he, I, Darius had been stabbed fatally. You don't usually live a long time and or have the cogency to be like, that motherfucker's not the real heir. You're going to be the real heir because I respect that you chased me to my literal death, but you didn't kill me. Well, back then, someone dies. They don't have a will. You can say what you want. <laughs> but after this, essentially, Alexander's like, cool, Persia's mine. And he, yeah, he full on is just like, cool, king of the world now. And it sounds like the like court history takers were like, yup. As in, on, like, Tuesday, they were like, yes, Darius, king of the world. And then by, like, Wednesday, they were like, yes, Alexander, king of the world. They just made that switch. They were like, new guys in charge, that's why we just gotta change the stationery around and stuff. So, Alexander has Persia now. 
They go on like a grand tour of Central Asia pursuing Bessus, who is eventually killed and dealt with because usurpers must be put down. He adopts this Persian uh, tradition called proskinesis. So at this point, he's like, okay, I now have to figure out how to get the Greeks and the Persians to get along because the Greek chauvinism of anyone who's not Greek is a barbarian and subject to slavery thing. It's not gonna go. F- it's not gonna fly if these empires are supposed to be one. So he adopts some of the manners of dress and stuff like that. But proskinesis is the one that really rubs the Greeks the wrong way, because proskinesis is a kind of like physical offering that subjects make to somebody in a higher point in like the social structure. So it can be anything from like ah oh, bowing, kissing the hands to full prostration on the ground. For Persians, this was pretty normal because this had been something that the Persian great kings had been doing prior. For Greeks, though, this kind of treatment was only reserved for the gods. So they saw it very much as Alexander was deifying himself unjustly. They had also been on the road for like eight or nine years now. This was a long campaign. These men were like, God, I miss my wife. I miss my parents. I miss my bed. And at first the Greeks were kind of like, ah ha ha, what a funny thing. And then Alexander started asking his Greek subjects to do it as well, to just be like, come on guys, you gotta play along. They were like, no, we're not doing that. There's a bunch of infighting. There's a little bit of a revolt. And he's like, okay, you know what? It's fine. I've gotten bored of admin. We're going after India. It's Alexander was determined to go to the edge of the known universe. And for him, that was somewhere in India. Thought the continent just fucking ended. And it was just ocean and there was one continent and it was Greeks and non-Greeks. He didn't know at this point, but the battle he would fight uh, in Western India was the last major battle of his life. They go, they fight over a river. There are war elephants that are brought by the local Raja Porus, who does lose the fight, but this is a case of being like, you fought real good. Also, you killed my horse. And I'm sad about that, but I respect you. So now we're bros. And so basically, Alexander's like, good fight. I'll give it back to you, but all your people pay taxes to me now. At this point, his soldiers do a full revolt. They're like, we are not going farther into India. Did you see those fucking war elephants? We miss our families. We want to go home. And he tries to make them see reason, but they're like, we've been at this for 10 years. No. So he's like, all right, fine. They go back to Susa, which is one of the major towns in Persia where he was kind of ruling from. Tries to send home the overaged, as they're called, and disabled soldiers who have been with him for like 10 years and they misunderstand what he's doing because he's trying to be like, all right, I'm going to start sending you home. And they think that he's going to replace them with Persians, which to a Greek professional soldier is like the worst thing is to be replaced by an Asiatic person. So they revolt and he's like, calm the fuck down. I'm just, I'm just doing what you asked. And they're like, no, you're trying to fill our positions. And he's like, fine, fuck. And so he puts Persians in their positions and they're like, oh God, no, forgive us. Gives them back. So after this, he attempts to do some more cultural fusion by doing a mass wedding of Persian noble women to high ranking and senior officers in his army. There's like hundreds of marriages that he does just all at once. And is like, hello, you have Persian wives now. Multiculturalism. Again, most of this adoption of Persian habits and stuff, aside from it making him the king of kings because the Persian king is the great king historically, was also to try and stop Greek and Persian fighting that would tear his empire apart. So he's just trying to force the issue. Just kind of instead of letting that happen over time. Yeah. Yeah. Very much trying to put together two parts that are not from the same broken thing. Most of these marriages do not last. And somewhere in here as well, they go on a trip to Ectabana for like a festival of Dionysus and Hephaestion starts feeling quite unwell. Hephaestion has been with Alexander since they were children. Famously, when they captured the mother, wife, and child of Darius III, they deferred to Hephaestion, who was taller and broader and generally more kingly looking, um, as Alexander was not a tall man. And so they deferred to Hephaestion as Alexander, as the king. For anyone else, this might have been a death sentence. And they were like, oh god, oh no, we didn't know. And the most famous thing that Alexander ever said about Hephaestion is he too is Alexander. His and Hephaestion's relationship has been the source of much speculation by historians who are like, were they lovers? Maybe, maybe not. Hard to say. What is known is that Hephaestion was Alexander's shadow. They were inseparable They were as close as two people can be without being physically the same person. At this festival, Hephaestion fell ill with a fever, essentially after a couple nights of heavy drinking. He was prescribed bed rest for a couple of days and and like plain food. After a couple of days, he started to feel a little better. 
And then the second a doctor's the doctor's back was turned, he ate a whole boiled chicken and chugged half a gallon of undiluted wine and immediately fell extremely ill again. That's just Wait. not smart. Right? I'm like, I get it. You've been eating saltine crackers for seven days. But essentially, he falls super ill. And by the time Alexander gets back from where he was watching the boys' games, Hephaestion is dead. And this destroys Alexander. He cuts his hair. He he's like weeps for days inconsolably, will not leave his bed, full Disney princess mode, but more tragic. Um, he institutes a state of mourning across the entire empire, including putting out flames at temples, which is usually something only reserved for the death of a king. He like sends word to, I think it's like the Oracle of Delphi, asking if Hephaestion could be ratified and prayed to as a god. And they're like, um, no, no, you can't. It totally destroys him. He orders a funeral pyre built for Hephaestion in Babylon. And it's built in the fashion of the Tower of Babel. Hephaestion is embalmed and he's sent ahead with Perdiccas, who is one of the companion cavalry to Babylon, because it takes five months to build the funeral pyre. It is the most lavish and extravagant funerary monument ever built in all of history. How tall is it? Do we know? So it's an extremely large tiered structure. They literally had to demolish part of the city to build this thing. Oh my god. To like to do the baked ceramic um, foundation for it to sit on. So st the first stage of this thing, the biggest stage, was adorned with the prows of 240 galleys, each with five banks of oars, two kneeling archers, hoplites, banners, there was on stage two, flaming torches with eagles and serpents. Stage Stages three and four had royal hunting scenes and a war of the centaurs. Stage five had lions and bulls. Stage six had panoplies of Greek and Persian arms. On the apex stood the mythical sirens of Homer's Odyssey, each hollowed out to accommodate a living singer, keening out rhapsodic laments. It supposedly cost 12,000 talents, which is approximately 25 tons of gold. Oh my god. The way that it's put in The Lost Tomb of Alexander the Great by Andrew Michael Chug, it remains the most lavish funerary monument in history and a testament to the profundity of Alexander's grief. They do this big old funeral pyre for Hephaestion in 324. So at this point, Alexander is 32, which if you'll remember from earlier, is the year that he dies. Mm-hmm. Shortly after this, he is called upon to go and deal with an issue with an Assyrian canal that's not working to divert floods from the desert. And so he essentially has to, he takes a engineering vessel up the river to go and investigate and to find a better place to dig the canal. The one thing that's really important about this expedition is that it took him into a very swampy, low water, Mesopotamian summer environment plagued with mosquitoes. Huge swarms of mosquitoes. There's a bunch of stuff about omens regarding his death in here, but we're gonna skip past that. The superstitious part of Alexander, we're just gonna leave that. That's too much. About two weeks after this, so it was May 31st, 323, that they went out to look for a better place to build a canal. He establishes a city along the way. Boat gets caught up in some reeds, reeds and they are absolutely lambasted with swarms of mosquitoes. About two weeks later, there's some sort of celebration. There's several nights of heavy drinking in a row. On the second night of heavy drinking, Alexander, after taking a drink from an undiluted or a goblet of wine, reports a sudden stabbing pain in his back and that his companions had to carry him to bed half dead, is the way they describe it. He had a fever overnight. In the morning, he was kind of fine. You know, bathed, did sacrifice, continued planning for more conquests into India. Over the next 10 days, things did not improve for Alexander. His fever came and went for the first couple of days, and after that, as they say, there was no relief from the fever to be found. It ran higher and higher until the last couple of days in which he was voiceless, and he was unable to get out of bed. He still did his best to perform sacrifices because Alexander was an extremely pious man when it came to the gods. Also, if you're gonna claim that one of the gods is your dead, you damn well do your sacrifices. And when it was clear that he was dying, essentially all of his companion cavalry was there with him, you know, his best of friends, Perdiccas, who had brought Festian's body back to Babylon, uh, Cassander, who is Antipater's son, among others that he's been with for most of his life. Before he dies, he is asked by Perdiccas, to whom do you leave your empire? And he takes off his like signet ring, hands it to 
Perdiccas and reportedly says, to the strongest, and fucking dies. And so... What a a boss. (laughs) But here's the thing, is up until this point, he had not allotted anybody a truly significant portion of power. So if Hephaestion had still been alive, he would have been the go-to, but Hephaestion was dead. So all of this very carefully balanced power among his companions and generals, suddenly the empire just goes to the strongest. And Alexander did have a male heir born just days after his birth, but unfortunately in the hubbub that follows, Roxana and the child do not live. Alexander had three wives during his life, but there's not a lot known about them. Because he was, he was a war guy, he was a horse guy. Mm-hmm. And on the brink of turning 33, he died June 10th or 11th, and his birthday is either June 20th or 26th. So he died days from the age of 33, having conquered more of the world than any one man ever has. He's seen as an inspiration and as a leading figure for a lot of historical figures that follow after, not just Julius Caesar, Napoleon Bonaparte was... Re- reportedly a huge Alexander fan as well. Uh, and the main comport of what he did, going through this whole area into Egypt, into the Middle East sort of thing, was he spread and set up Hellenistic culture in those places that survives long beyond his short-lived empire. Um, and that infuses modern life as we know it and going forward. As for what happens with his body, and after that we will cover that next time, I'm curious what you think killed Alexander the Great? Because there's a great amount of debate to this. Immediately, what I think of is when usually an older couple, one of them passes, and the other, very soon thereafter, usually within a year or so, also passes. Um, And the remarkable symmetry of Hephaestion and Alexander's deaths there, the wine and all that, like, there's just so many poetic parallels yeah sympathy grief he could he just couldn't live without a question (laughs) that's the sweetest interpretation of his death that i have ever heard is that he died of heartbreak unfortunately historians are, are quick to disagree and there's a lot of theories later historians are like maybe it was poison because there was reportedly a pain when he was drinking from an undiluted cup of wine. But pointedly, any poison that would cause you sudden and immediate pain would also kill you very quickly, not 10 days later. Mm -hmm. The main working theory these days, and again, we don't have his body, so we don't have any way to check or prove this, is that he actually died of malaria that was exacerbated by his extreme and excessive drinking because his his behavior became slightly more erratic after Hephaestion's death, like the proskinesis demands, the deification, all of that kind of got a little more out of hand. So there was definitely some unraveling that was happening without Hephaestion's influence. But the current theory is that when he went out to check for a better canal position, those swarms of mosquitoes that he was dealing with in the very hot Mesopotamian summer had malaria, one of the four strains that go back that far, in fact, and the most severe one, which symptomatically lines up with the records of the days leading to Alexander's death. Of course, there are lots of people who are kind of more of the mind that someone like Alexander the Great, who's achieved as much, taken so much land, has had such an influence, could not be felled by something so small as a bacterial infection. But, I mean... (laughs) He's not... As, as much as he is, likes to claim it, he is not a god. He is not. He's just a man. He is, and he is human, and that's the, the difference between the fiction and the reality of it, is that as much as there was this deification and there was propaganda and there was all of these additional ways to really laud him into a very high position in life, right? To exceed the glories and successes of his father, which he absolutely did. He did exactly what his father had wanted to do and more, without ever losing a single battle. He, yeah, he fills such this huge space, and there is so much myth and lore and fictionalization around his life that I can see why some people are like, you're telling me he died because of mosquitoes? Yeah, because he was a real person, which in my mind makes the kind of complicated nature of who he was as a person and what he accomplished that much more awesome in the very traditional sense of the word. It's just a good reminder that we're all human. We are. And we all die at some point for some reason. 
Yeah, and that maybe we should have wills and testaments instead of being like, I built an empire and I left it to only who can punch the best. Yeah, some pe there's some versions of it in which they say he said something about predicting a rather fierce war games to follow. And the fun thing about the malaria supposition as well is famously, Alexander's body was untouched for six days after his death before the embalmers arrived. You would think that in like Middle Eastern summer, it's literally, it's June, it's hot as fuck, that that would have done some damage to his body, but apparently he was still in mint condition. This was a mint corpse at this point. And The Lost Tomb of Alexander the Great by Chug hypothesizes it was because he was in a terminal coma. So essentially he was in like a twilight state between being dead and alive, hence why he still looked so fresh and had not yet begun to decay by the time the embalmers arrived. Which, Google won't tell me what a terminal coma is, but it just keeps sending me to end-of-life care, like hospice and that sort of thing. So I wonder if the embalmer actually killed Alexander. <laughs> I was gonna say, like, it sounds like he wasn't, by our medical standards nowadays, if that's the case, it doesn't sound like he was actually dead yet. <laughs> yeah! Which makes me wonder how, like, how long would he have been in a terminal coma if that is actually what happened? But it's it's part of why we're still looking for the man's body. We're like, what killed you? Well, don't don't spoil too much on that. We'll we'll have to get into that next time. Indeed, and we'll have Christia back to also help flesh out any information about the ancient world that I most definitely missed or misremembered or miswrote. We'll cover even more next time. Mortals Podcast is created, hosted, and edited by three morbidly curious individuals, Christia, Mariah, and Janine. You can find us on Twitter at Podcast Mortals, on Instagram at Mortals underscore podcast, and on our website, mortalspodcast.com. Show your support, access bonus content, and help us keep ads out of your ears by joining our community at patreon.com slash mortalspodcast. Our music is A Mermaid's Eulogy by Etienne Roussel. Thanks for listening, mortals. Take care of yourselves out there. <laughs>